We're going to be in the book of Ezra. We're going to start in chapter 7, and we're going to go all the way through the end of the book. You guys online that are watching at home, you probably haven't even finished your bacon yet, but uh, here we are, and we're going to keep on... We're going to keep on rolling. So we're going to go through the end of the book of Ezra. We're going to close out the book of Ezra uh, this morning. And let me tell you, today's text, what we are looking at, is a bit of a uh, doozy. But I also think it's an important one for us. It's one of the things we believe in strongly here at Providence is the, the, the power and the importance of God's Word and what the Bible teaches us. And it's why we teach the way we do, working through the Bible uh, usually verse by verse, if not story by story, and going all the way through entire books of the Bible. Because, uh, and this morning is the perfect example of this, it will make you think about, consider, and do things uh, with passages that uh, you never would have done before. It'll make you preach, it'll make me preach a text that I never would have picked. And this morning is definitely one of those. And now we're going to cover a lot of different things this morning as we uh, close out this book, but uh, toward the end, we're going we're gonna to ask this question. So I'm just going to put this out there as a bit of a tease for what's coming. What do you do when God gets it wrong? What do you do whenever God gets it wrong? When you're studying the Bible and you read something and you, you look at it and you think, well, that's not right. There's no way that that's right. What do you do in those, uh, in those moments? It's a question that any serious student of the Bible is going to have to answer. And today I'm going to do my best uh, to answer it. So just kind of put that, put that on hold, put a pin in that one, and we'll come back to it toward the end. Last week we were seven chapters into this book and we finally got the, to meet the man that the book is all about. Uh, we got to meet Ezra. And what we saw last week is that Ezra was a man that was, uh, that was strategically placed because he had some royal pull with the king. He was smart. He had studied. We, we, we saw his kind of life verse for himself where he uh, was a guy who had set his mind to learn, to do, and to teach the law of God. We saw that he's a massively important figure in Israel's history. Some would put him uh, second only to Moses, even surpassing King David. We touched on this last week a little bit, but we're going to see it fleshed out a little bit more this morning, answering the question, what made Ezra so important? For a nation that had lost its bearing, lost its identity, lost its traditions, and in many ways lost its religion, Ezra was the man that was appointed and passionate about restoring all of these things back to Israel. But as we're going to see, you can't, uh, as the saying goes, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. Uh, you can't rebuild a nation and a people without stepping on a few toes. So let's open our, our, our Bibles, do a little legwork, uh, and, and see just what happened as Ezra made his way back to Jerusalem. So chapter 7 of the book of Ezra. First in chapter 7, we want to pick up where we left off last week. Ezra has approached King Artaxerxes. He has approached him and kind of asked for his blessing to return to Jerusalem so that he can instruct everyone about the law. So he's come and he said, King, this is what I want to do, and I'm asking for your blessing. And then in verses 11 through 26, we have this long letter from King Artaxerxes to everyone that would be impacted by Ezra's travel back to Jerusalem. And we have this long letter where Artaxerxes instructs the royal treasury uh, to be drawn in order to 
to support uh, Ezra's mission. He instructs the governors and the tax collectors uh, not to harass or take a toll from Ezra as he passes through their lands. And he says, leave him alone. He has a free, free path all the way back to Jerusalem. Don't mess with him. He gives Ezra this smooth pathway and all this treasure to take with him and says, go with my blessing. And we can learn a lot about Ezra and we can learn a lot about God from the way Ezra reacts to this very generous offer from King Artaxerxes because it goes above and beyond what Ezra had even asked for. Look in verse 27 of chapter 7. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So Ezra sees this blessing from King Artaxerxes, all this treasure, all this clear pathway, all this protection, all of these things that are granted to Ezra. Ezra sees, uh, sees this uh, coming from a secular pagan king. He sees it as God's handiwork. He sees it as God's handiwork. He knows that there's no good reason for the king to do this outside of God moving in a certain way. The only reason that this should happen is that God ordained it to be so. That's it. That's the only reason that Ezra can see for this happening. He says, it doesn't make any sense. And so what he does is he steps back and he says, this amazing thing has happened. This king has been incredibly generous. And what is Ezra's first response? It's not, oh, thank you, great and generous king. It is, blessed am I because God has intervened. And he says, thank you, God, for what you have done. So Ezra recognizes what is happening. And I know this is a point that we can make every week, but it's all over the pages of Scripture. God is always in control. He is always in control. All of it. Ezra sees clearly that what has happened is not just a gift from a pagan king. It is God directing the heart of that pagan king to give this stuff. It's a simple point as we begin, but an important one. Too often, we miss the hand of God in our lives because we attribute it to the wrong things. We attribute it to good luck, to coincidence. We attribute it to, we just happen to be in the right place at the right time. Ezra will have none of that. When this unexpected generous gift comes from the king, Ezra knows who's been at work. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Sometimes I wonder how many things in our lives that are, uh, that, that are good things, are gifts that God is trying to give us, and we dismiss them because we somehow see them as coming from something less than Christian. We can talk about this example in a hundred different ways. But let's just take medicine, for example. There are a lot of people that would say medicine is simply a product of science. And we should praise doctors and scientists for their work in developing medicines. And that's right. We should praise them. But we'd be foolish not to see medicine as a gift that God has given us. 
Did doctors and scientists discover it and create it? Certainly. But who ordered the world in such a way that things can be discovered and applied in the first place? It was God. It amazes me how often Christians seem to be scared of science. It amazes me how often people see a scientist who is pushing back against the existence of God or something like that, and and, and Christians kind of back away and say, that guy's just too smart. I don't know how to argue against him. And certainly you may not know the point-for-point counterpoint that is out there, but listen, science is not something Christians should be afraid of. In fact, it is something that we can celebrate. More to the point, do you know that those who developed the scientific method in the first place you know, this, you know how that works? You, you take a hypothesis, you test it, you, you, how all of that works. You know who, who created that in the first place? They were Christians who recognized the world was ordered in such a way that you could test it, you could repeat it, and you could find out what was happening. And why did they recognize that it was created in that way? Because they were Christians and they said, God has created it to be this way. Because God has created it with order, we then can be scientists and we can test each of those things. We shouldn't be afraid of science. The same thing could be said not just of science, but of beauty. God created the world full of beauty. And he created man with the capacity to take in that beauty. Someone doesn't have to be a Christian artist to create music that we can appreciate for its beauty. Now, Christian music is its own kind of money-making industry, and there's certainly a place for that, and there's a way that that can be used. But you can listen to a song written by someone who does not know God and gain a greater appreciation for God because he is the one that has created the world with beauty and our capacity to take it in. We could say that about nature. We could say that about uh, all different types of art and all those things. We could go on and on and on with these examples. But the reality is too often we are quick to dismiss things as being secular things or things not of God so we don't apply them to God. But the reality is he's created us in such a way that we can know things and we can appreciate things and those are gifts from God. Ezra acknowledges as much here. The king's edict was truly the hand of God at work. We can go on and on. We can talk more and more about these things, but I want to move on because you have a lot to get to. So we move on to chapter 8, and we get a, a greater sense of who Ezra is and what he's about to do in Jerusalem. So he, he talks about all these things that, that Artaxerxes has done. He grabs uh, or he, he, he gathers together a group of people to go with him back to Jerusalem. This is about a four-month trek from the capital of Susa all the way to Jerusalem, and he says, all right, we're headed back. We're taking all this treasury. We're taking all of this stuff. We're headed back. And so chapter 8 is the list of all the people that are coming with him and all the priests that are coming with him. And then we get to verse 21, and we get a little bit of a picture about what Ezra is about on this mission. So Ezra chapter 8, verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for, God, is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this. 
And he listened to our entreaty. So it's kind of funny what happens here. Ezra decides that they need to uh, not take the safety of their journey to chance. They need to pray and they need to ask that God would protect them on this journey. So I don't know, maybe, I guess he prayed and probably asked for traveling mercies, because that's what we do whenever we're going on a trip, right? So he prays, he asks for traveling mercies, and he says, God, uh, take care of us. Um, and, and so he, he asked this question, but I think it's kind of funny why, like why he says that he, he asked it. He asked for this from God because he's too embarrassed to go back to the king and ask for some soldiers to go with him. He says, I can't go back and ask him because I already told him that God is for us and so we'll be just fine. But it's like he's kind of reconsidering, like, maybe I should have asked for soldiers. That would have been nice, at least a little something extra to, to protect us. But what he had told the king, I think, is very revealing about what Ezra believes about who God is about what he believes uh, based on what he has learned as he studies God's law, this is what he says. He says, The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. It's important because it shows us what Ezra believes about God, about what his study of the law had taught him. Now, he knows this is not some absolute promise against all calamity, hence why he's, he's praying this in the first place. He knows, like, you know what, we are exposed out here, and bad things could happen to us. But he knows that God's law teaches this principle, and he knows he needs God's help. And it's this assertion that he had made that he is now going to flesh out in the coming days once he gets to Jerusalem. As he ministers to the people, he's going to start showing what this means and how it plays out and how Jerusalem better start taking these, the people in Jerusalem better start taking this seriously. You see, the people had gone into exile because they had forgotten this simple fact. That those are, that are for God will have God for them and those that are against God will have God against them. They had forgotten this fact. They had done their own thing, and they had not sought God. They had forsaken their God, and his wrath had come down on them in the form of exile. This is why they're having to come back out of exile, because God had placed them there, because they had walked away from God. And so Ezra is bound by this truth. His ministry will show this whenever he gets to town. So let's look in Ezra chapter 9, and let's see how this plays out. It's going to be interesting for us to read this and to consider how things play out whenever Ezra shows up in town. He's in town. He's teaching the law. He's gathering the, uh, the lay people around him. He's gathering the leaders around him, and he's kind of getting a, a lay of the land. He's kind of gathering the situation on the ground for the people there in, in Jerusalem. He's trying to get a feel for what things are like. You know, so far he's been in the capital. He's not been around these people that have uh, rebuilt the temple and and tried to kind of restart things. He's he's trying to get a feel. What have they done in the time that they've been here as Zerubbabel has has started this this team uh, to get all this stuff going? So he's getting this. and, And remember, we're talking about 140 years since they've gone into exile, roughly 70 years ish since uh, Zerubbabel led the first crew back. So that's enough time to get the temple up and running, and you'd hope enough time for them to begin anew in their second chance and reestablish who they are. So let's see what happens in Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. 
After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief, uh, chief men has been foremost. So when you read that, that's a great big, uh-oh. Like we've got a big problem here. This is very, very bad. If you remember the early part of our story as we looked at the first group that came back, uh, that came back, that the whole reason they had gone into exile was this very problem. So let's be clear about what's happening here. It's important that we sort this out. The, the assessment was that the Jewish men were taking foreign women, marrying them, and having a family with them. And this is a massive problem. It is a big, big problem. But I want to be clear, we're not talking about racism here. That's not what we're talking about. I know it says in verse 2, the holy race. But it's not talking about skin color there. Really, the point that it's trying to make is talking about nationality and the people of Israel. This is a big deal. This is a big deal because during this time in world history, it was almost impossible to separate, separate out a nationality and a religion. The two were hopelessly intertwined with one another. And so the, the, the people of another, uh, of, another, uh, of another nationality would have adopted a different way of life, a different set of gods, a different way of worship. And so what was happening is that uh, the, the Jews, the Jewish men, especially some of the leaders, it said, uh, were the chief offenders, would take these wives from foreign lands and they would then bring, bring their, them together, have a family with them. And what would happen is that not that these women would then confer, convert to Judaism and to the worship of Yahweh and to the traditions that had been established by the law of Moses, but instead, they would take all of those things and then they would kind of combine it with what the women brought to the relationship and their gods and their way of worship. And the two things became hopelessly intermingled. And so what you had is this, this kind of mix of religions. You guys remember what we called this. This is syncretism. Syncretism. It's what sent them into exile in the first place. It's what sent them into exile in the first place. So what, what we've got here is a big, big problem. And we know that this isn't strictly about race because we have examples in the Old Testament. We have examples in the book of Ezra where it talks about uh, foreign wives coming over that fors forsook their gods and then became part of the nation of Israel as they worshipped Yahweh and him alone. This is the story of Ruth. This is what Ruth tells Naomi, that, that your God will be my God, your people will be my people. And then Ruth is accepted as part, of, uh, part of, uh, uh, of the nation of Israel and the people of Israel because she forsook her gods and her people. But what's happening here is that these women aren't doing this. And so you have the exact problem that set them into exile 140 years prior is happening again. They have not learned their lesson. Had they come and renounced their gods, it would be a different story, but they had not. And so you have a big problem. In verse 1, it said they had not separated themselves. So this shows that everything was kind of put together. 
the religions were being mixed. Israel had not learned its lesson. So what does Ezra do in response to this? Think for a second, what would you do in response to this? You're the priest coming back to call the people into account and to call them back to the law of Moses, which the law of Moses explicitly said, you can't do this. How would you handle that situation? I've thought about that a lot the last couple of weeks. I have absolutely no idea. But here's how Ezra handled it. So let's look in verse 6. Ezra says, oh my God, I am ashamed and I blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, to utter shame, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown shown by the Lord our God, to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia, to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. So Ezra rightly recognizes the problem at hand here. He's embarrassed by the sin of the people. He says, God, you have been gracious to us. Even in our slavery, you have not forgotten us. In fact, you gave us all of this by these pagan kings, and this is how we have repaid you. What shall we say after this? We have forsaken your commandments. He rightly recognizes the sin of his people. And he personally comes to confess the sins of his people. Which sounds an awful lot like Moses in Exodus. The people had been led from captivity only to turn and worship the gods they had left. It's the golden calf all over again. But this time it's syncretism brought on by these marriages. So now what? How do they get out of this predicament? So Ezra's first response is that he weeps and he is in sorrow over the sin. Verse 1, chapter 10. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, children, gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. So he calls a gathering, he lays out their sin, and they respond with weeping and sorrow. Verse 2, And Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all, the, all these wives and their children, according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as as has been said. So they took the oath. So the proposed solution to this problem, the proposed solution that Ezra agrees to is that these women and their children would be put away. They would be put away. 
Now, the word here for women is not the same as the word for wife. So it may be that these were basically live-in girlfriends that they had uh, kind of built a, a family with and had children with. That may be possible. So it may not be their actual wives, and so it wouldn't technically be divorce. But the end result, the human capital, is essentially the same. And then this is basically how the book ends. You can read through a little bit more in chapter 10 as the people confess their sins. And at the end of chapter 10, it just is a list of all the people that had done this intermarriage. It's all the people that had really kind of created the problem in the first place. And that's how this book of Ezra ends. This book of great celebration about the return of God's people to Jerusalem. It ends with a list of people and the sins that they have committed. That is an anticlimactic ending to a book if there ever was one. So what do, you, what do you make of this? Like When you read this, what does it make you feel? What does it make you think? The whole scene is terrible. All of it. It's all disgusting. The syncretism of the people, the putting away of the wives and the children, it's all a mess. And we don't know what happens to these women. We don't know if they're just put out and basically put out on the street. We don't know if they're put out of the house but then still cared for by the people of Israel. We, we don't know. We don't know if they're sent back to their people and to their lands. We don't know. Now let me tell you my thoughts about this passage when I read this. I hate it. I hate it. I hate reading it. I hate imagining it. I hate thinking about the human capital that is involved here. I absolutely hate it. I'm disgusted whenever I read this. I'm disgusted that they made the families and that they have gone right back to the sin that they had 140 years prior, knowing that this is what caused the problem in the first place. I'm disgusted with the putting them away. I'm disgusted it was ever an option that was brought up, let alone that it was an option that was actually enacted. I think it's terrible. I think it's absolutely awful. And then I'm blown away that the, the spokesperson for God, Ezra, would be not just okay with it, he would hold them to it. When I read this, my first thought is, I think God got this one wrong. I think this one, this is just not right. Ezra didn't hear right, or God just got it wrong. This should not have happened. So now what? What do you do with that? What do you do when you read a passage in the Bible and you think, there's no way this is right? And I'm asking you this question because at some point in your life, this is going to be a very, very important one. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you six things that you do. And I'm going to walk you through these six things. I'm going to give you these six things. And I'm going to say, all right, here you go. Here's what needs to happen. All right, so the first thing. What do you do when you read something in the Bible and you think, God got that one wrong, or whoever it is, the actor in the Bible, they got that one wrong? Number one, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when you read the Bible and you find something in there you don't agree with. If we aren't God, and we're not, if God is God, and He is, then we should not be surprised when we read things and things happen that we don't expect or we don't initially agree with. If God agreed with me on everything, what in the world do I need Him for? Absolutely nothing. 
Because apparently I can handle the role just fine if we all agree on everything. But we don't always agree. And that's good because it means I still have much to learn. And I desperately need the Spirit to open my eyes and my heart to the truth of what God wants to teach me. Listen, there's a whole host of people out there right now that are walking away from Christianity because God does things in the Bible that they don't like. It's almost every week, if you follow the the social media Christian world, that somebody else prominent comes out and walks away from the teaching of Scripture because they simply don't agree with what it says or they don't like it. Just this week, I read a long Twitter thread from from someone whose songs we have sung here on Sunday mornings for just that reason. And what that reveals is that you, if that, if, that, if, if that is your approach, what that reveals is that you trust your own ability to discern truth, lies, morality, and eternity above God and His Word. It's the same old question. Did God really say? The second thing, so the first, don't be surprised. The second, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. These two go hand in hand. Simply because you find something in the Bible that you struggle to accept does not mean that your faith is in jeopardy or that a house of cards is about to tumble down. It means you're not God, and it's good for you to know that. That's what that means. You can actually find a lot of comfort in that level of humility. Despite what you may have heard or perhaps what you were told growing up, there is a lot of room within the Christian faith for doubt, confusion, and questions. It's why we have the the prayer where it says, God, I believe, help my unbelief. So don't be afraid to pray that prayer. God is big enough to handle that prayer. He's big enough to handle our doubts and our questions. He's not afraid of them either. It's okay In fact, if you read the Bible and you're never confronted with something you don't understand and you're always on board with everything that comes across, you probably should be afraid because that means you're probably reading the Bible simply to confirm thoughts you already had instead of be shaped by something bigger than yourself. And that should scare you. Don't be afraid when you read stuff you don't understand. It's okay. Take it to God. And walk through it. Third thing. So don't be surprised. Don't be afraid. Third thing. Do the work. Do the work. So if you find something like this passage was for me, and is for me, frankly, and it makes you shake your head and say, I just don't get this. In fact, I don't like it at all. Then do the work to make sure you truly are understanding things correctly as you read through this. As best you are able... What is going on in this passage? This means you may need to look some stuff up in some trusted resources. Maybe a website. Maybe you need to buy a book or two. Read through different translations. All of those things can help you understand more about what is going on. Have lunch with a friend or a mentor that you know loves God and loves the Bible. Understand the context. Start with the paragraph that it's in. Work out to the chapter, then the book and then the bigger picture in the entire Bible. Do the work to make sure that you're reading what you think you are reading. 
oftentimes whenever I have people come to me and say, I just don't understand why this would say this. Whenever we step back just a little bit and understand it in its context, it'll make perfect sense. Not always, but a lot of times that will solve the question that you had. In this case, we did the work. We know the context. We know what's happening. And it may be, so for instance, what we gather from that is it may not be their actual wives, but their live-in girlfriends, which does kind of change things a little bit. Doesn't fix all of it. It's still terrible, but it does change just a little bit what it is we're talking about here. So do the work. Fourth thing, read the rest of the Bible. So this is finishing out this in the context. And this one is important. One principle of Scripture interpretation, that's called hermeneutics. It's a big word, but it just means understanding what Scripture is teaching. One principle of Scripture interpretation is that if you run into something you don't understand, there may be a clearer passage elsewhere in Scripture that teaches something similar to help clarify it for you. So, for example, here's what we can do for us today. This is in the Old Testament, but we can go to 1 Corinthians and we can find where Paul talks about this very problem. So verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12. He says, To the rest I, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Totally different advice than what Ezra gave. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. There's all kinds of stuff in there that you, if you're reading that, you should be like, okay, now I have more questions. This is how Bible study works. Like, you keep on rolling with this. But what you can glean from that helps just a little bit to understand things. So what we can definitively say here is that Paul tells us whatever is happening in Ezra does not apply to us today. We can't approach the problem that happens in Ezra the same way today. That's helpful. It doesn't resolve the tension of what we see in that passage, but it does kind of resolve the ongoing tension of what do we do today. All right? So read the rest of the Bible and see if the rest of the Bible has something that will help you understand what's happening. Number five. So there's six of them. Number five. Take what you can accept from the passage. Take what you can accept from the passage. It may be that what you are struggling with is a small piece of what is happening in a larger picture. Often we can get hung up on a relatively minor thing, but miss the larger point being made in the passage. Jesus points this out to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Jesus' point is clear here. You focused on the minor details, but you missed the big picture. So you can still draw from the big picture. So for us today in this, pa- this passage, the way this works, the big picture of what is happening is clear and unmistakable. God is serious about sin, and he expects us to root it out of our lives no matter the cost. And if we won't, he will. That we can take from this passage very clearly. Whatever you think about the wives being put away, it's clear that God is not playing games with sin. Ezra's phrase is clearly at play and at work here. 
The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So while we don't have to fully understand what is going on with these women being put away and these children being put away, what we can understand and we can quickly apply is that there is no room for sin in the Christian life. We have to attack it. We have to kill it. If not, it will kill us. We have to attack it. We have to go after it. Ezra is unmistakably clear about that. And then finally, the sixth thing that we can do is trust and obey. Trust and obey. Now, most of the time, if you do the first five steps, you'll be able to discern from the passage most of what you need to. And, and oftentimes, you'll find out, you'll find, all right, maybe this isn't quite as, as far off or quite as objectionable as I thought it was. Either the passage wasn't saying what you thought it was, or you realized something wasn't as bad as you thought, but not always. Sometimes you come to the same conclusion that I have with this passage today, which is there is much that I can learn about my sin and my nature and my own meager attempts to put my sin to death, and I should apply that. I don't like what happens here. I don't like how this plays out, but I can still learn and apply this. And also, you can know that if you reach this type of impasse, where you say, I still just don't like this. The issue then is with me, not with God. The issue is with me, not with God. You say, well, how do you know that? Aren't you just kind of defying reason and logic or denying reason and logic? Aren't you just kind of working against your own kind of common sense and how that works? Maybe. But more likely, I'm admitting that I'm not God and I don't have all the answers that I did not create this world, nor am I the arbiter of right and wrong. So instead of demanding that God answer me, I will instead pray that the Spirit will do two things. One, reveal the true meaning of what the Scripture is teaching to me. And two, remove whatever is within me that is causing me to push back against whatever Scripture is teaching. Where I sit today with this passage, I don't get it. I have no idea why this is right for Ezra to do this. I have no idea why he would do this. And we can talk a lot about how in the Old Testament this is narrative, and it's what we would say descriptive, not prescriptive. It describes what happened. It isn't telling us how we should live. So that's one thing that is happening here. But bottom line is, I don't understand how this is right. But... I trust that God understands what is happening here. I trust that God is working in the ways that are good because that's what it says he will do and because that is his character. And I will trust him. And I will obey what I can glean from the passage. And then I press on. And I keep reading. And I keep studying. And I keep praying. And I keep trusting that God is good and he is merciful to me and my slowness to understand. So I began today by asking the question, what do we do when God gets it wrong? But the truth is, it just feels that way. It just feels that way. The question is really, what do we do when we don't understand how God gets it right? Let me tell you why I'm comfortable in this approach to studying the Bible. It's because Jesus frees me from the overwhelming need that I feel in my flesh to be right. He frees me from that. I don't have to be right. 
In fact, I can take solace in when I am wrong because I find my identity, my hope, my salvation, not in my ability to be right, but in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. That's where I find my hope. I don't have to to look for those things, for hope and for identity in winning arguments and self-justifying myself through my rightness. I am much more concerned with being righteous than being right. And I cannot be righteous if I think I am right at all times. I am justified in Christ, which means I can handle being wrong from time to time. And I dare say I'm not the only one that needs to be reminded of that on a regular basis. So as we wrap up this book and we see what sin has done, we should see a triumphant return of God's people into the temple, into the the city, and instead we end with a list of sinners who sin. Such is the nature of our sin. Such is the nature of our need for God. Such is the nature of our sin, which makes us, which makes the truth of the gospel that much more desperate for us. Which gives us that much more hope to our constantly failing ears. So this book ends, and it ends on such a down note. But part of why it ends on such a down note is because the hope of Israel was not that they would come back and behave. The hope of Israel is that there was something bigger coming for us. Now listen, I don't have time to get to all of this this morning, but the next four weeks, you're going to want to be here. Because we're going to talk about what this, this, this theme that is happening here in Ezra and Nehemiah of exile. We're going to back out from the book of, of Ezra just a little bit. We're going to back out just a little bit. And we're going to look at exile in Scripture. And we're going to see the hope that we have in Christ when we fail in so many other areas. It will be a great time to be here, and I think it will be a great time to invite others to come and be a part because we are going to look at what our true hope is and how our failures and our failings are cause for serious concern, but not for hopelessness. And as this book ends, full of sin, full of sorrow, full of ugliness, My prayer is that we would read the scriptures. We would learn from the scriptures. And that where the Spirit applies it to us, we would trust and obey. And that would be the call that we hear this morning. And we would find our hope in Christ and Him alone. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, it is our confession that our understanding, that our minds, that, your, that they are incomplete and that your ways are not our ways. And that often in life, we will feel lost, we will feel confused. We will not understand why we are in the situation we are in, why things happen the way that they happen. When that happens, God, I pray that you will give us the faith to trust in you. This is our prayer for faith. Our prayer is not that we would be right, but that we would trust. That we would find our hope with you. And that you would write that truth on our hearts through your son and what he's done for us on the cross and on Easter, rising again from the dead.
Father, give us faith this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.